Hey, Brian. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 32nd episode of The Goods Film Podcast. How you doing today, Brian? Doing okay, Dan. What movie did we watch today? So, we watched a movie that was a very important movie to me personally when I was a kid. And that is the 1995 film Mighty Morphin Power Rangers The Movie. Directed by Brian Spicer. Was a theatrically released feature length movie around Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which was a hit TV show, a cultural phenomenon amongst elementary schoolers in the early 90s. Oh, for sure. So, Dan is two years older than I am, and I'm two years younger than he is. So, I was a little interested to know more about what your experience of the Power Rangers was. Um, mine, I remember it being super big when I was four. So, like, my very earliest TV memory is sitting in, like, a daycare room at a bowling alley and the kids talking about, oh, Power Rangers is going to be on. Mine is similar. It was first, like, this word-of-mouth sensation. Like, I went to a a daycare and then I also had friends at, at school that that was all they would talk about. And when we would do recess or we would just be playing... They always wanted to play Power Rangers, and I hadn't seen it. And I finally got my parents to show it to me. And I was completely in love with it. It was like my number one favorite thing in the world for, I don't know, probably through maybe second grade for like a year or two, I would say. I got some of the toys. I remember I got like the uh, maybe more than a foot tall, the Red Ranger T-Rex. I really liked the Red Ranger. He, he was my boy. Yeah, it, it was it was a big deal for five year old, six year old me, which would align with your four year old. And yes, tons of merchandise. It was Pokemon a few years early, Minecraft many years early. It was the thing that captivated young male minds in the moment. Definitely. So I have a brother who, like, as an adult got really into the Super Sentai series that Power Rangers was based on. And in fact, not just based on, but if I'm not mistaken, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers cut and chopped footage from one of the Super Sentai series and then added in some scenes with the American quote-unquote teenage characters as the heroes. Yes, so this is a good follow-up from our discussion on Godzilla the other day. All these Super Sentai shows, they churn them out in Japan. They're an example of something called Tokuzatsu, which I think I name-dropped in one of our early episodes. But it refers to series of Japanese media that have, like, supernatural special effects superhero stuff giant monster stuff it's kind of all one big cauldron that it can all be considered part of it's like if something is happening there that doesn't occur in day-to-day life that can be a tokusatsu and usually there are crazy costumes and monsters yeah i think it takes a lot of its cues from the the kaiju movies where you have obviously lower production value versions but you have miniatures and rubber suits and action going on and it's a lot of kung fu i I mean i call it kung fu i don't really know 
what the precise term is, but lots of hand-to-hand, over-the-top combat between these masked, suited heroes and these monsters. And it's just such an interesting editing undertaking to think about making a story, like making a teen American story, like comedy with some drama elements to create like a Saved by the Bell mashup with all this existing monster fighting footage that comes across the Pacific. Right. I completely agree. Like to some extent, it almost feels like it would be more work to do that than to just film your own fight scenes, you know? Right. Because you got to choose very carefully, edit, redub, and make it fit within the context of a story and all that. Yeah, but I, I think, I don't know what the production history looks like. So it was kind of semi-famously, like even I knew this as a, a teen, but Sabin, I think that's how you say it, S-A-B-A-N, is the guy responsible for importing this. He kind of conceived this whole thing and it made him a billionaire. He was this kind of scrappy business guy who, who brought it there. I think he was Israeli, right? I think so, yeah. I, I sent you some facts about it. The one that blew my mind is that the actual business guy has, uh, his name is Haim, H-I-A-I-M. So I think that would point you towards Israeli. Sabin has a co-writing credit for the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers theme song, which is just a, like an all-time TV theme song banger. It's just got the flying electric guitars and the shout-along chorus. It's a great one. Yeah, the guitar lead into that song is so face-melting. I know. Like, I look at pictures of myself as a baby, and I was pretty cute, but I can only assume that the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers theme song in 1994 irrevocably melted my face. (laughs) That's why you look the way you do today? Yes, yes. (laughs) Oh. But yeah, so this movie came out in 1995 when I was seven. I might have seen it in theaters. They, they had a touring live Power Rangers show that I went to. And it was like, I didn't really do things like that when I was a kid. I didn't go places or do activities. I did karate for a couple of years and piano for a couple of years. But I never did like, I don't know, went to shows or stuff like that. And I went and I just remember being scared because it was so loud all the time. It was like a live concert show type thing where people were dressed up as the Power Rangers. And so that was a big deal. That was a cool thing. And then I'm pretty sure I saw this in theaters when I was seven, when the the TV show came out around like the second or third season, which, by the way, is still running 28 years later in its 28th season or or iteration or whatever. It's, It's still going. Right. And for reference, this movie came out between the second and third seasons of Mighty Morphin. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I really f- closely followed it up through... I remember Zio being a thing, and I remember that being right around the time my interest was fading. I think that might have been the third season. I- I'm not sure. I was just coming to the point where I was kind of recognizing the formula and how they like reused the same things but switched in new characters and new suits and new villains to make it all feel fresh. Yeah, I don't really like how they can swap in new people and just think kids aren't going to care. <laughs> because, I mean, I may be just a shameless Gen one as they say, uh, when it comes to Pokemon, where, oh, you only care about 
what they gave you first and you can't care about the new stuff. And it's like, well, I mean, you said there were 151. You know, you had a Pokemon scientist who said there's 151 out there to know about. But then you can just every five years or whatever, give another 200 and you're supposed to care about those new ones the same. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. But uh, the original lineup was Jason, the Red Ranger. Billy the Blue Ranger, Kimberly the Pink Ranger, Trini the Yellow Ranger, and Zack the Black Ranger. And and <laughs> worth noting what you might be about to point out, I don't know. Probably that in retrospect, it's highly suspicious or questionable maybe that they made a guy who has kind of dark skin and looks like he could potentially be Native American. He's the Red Ranger. They made... The Asian, the Yellow Ranger, and the black guy is the Black Ranger. And then the very slightly coated gay guy, or sort of wimpy guy at least, the Blue Ranger, they had, they had him in there too. And he, he was the guy who stayed on the show for a long time, but he ended up leaving the, the show because he the actor was in fact gay, and he was harassed by the production crew like nonstop from when he started on the show the whole story of the production sounds a little bit shady because these were non-union actors and they were young so they were basically scooped up for this experimental project which then exploded into superstardom and they didn't want to pay these kids more or young 20 somethings yeah it is it is very odd I'd love to read like a tell-all book. I think at least from the first few years, that would be kind of fascinating because I bet there are a lot of stories behind the scenes. Right. And so once actors started kind of making noises that they would like to be paid commensurate with what the studio is taking in off of these Power Ranger productions, uh, they were quickly written out of the show. I... Was surprised not to see some of these characters here in the movie, but I looked it up. It says, Jason, Zack, and Trini, near the end of season two, are selected to represent Angel Grove, their hometown, at the World Peace Conference in Geneva. <laughs> Which is quite an explanation to write a character out. <laughs> we need you to go to Geneva, but not all of you, just some of you, and don't come back. Yeah, that's that's something. That's pretty funny. The the last ranger we didn't talk about is Kimberly, played by Amy Jo Johnson. She's the pink ranger. She's the only ranger whose outfit includes a skirt. She's very much the girly girl. She was probably the first like romantic crush type feelings I ever had as a kid was towards uh, Amy Jo Johnson as Kimberly. From in first grade, one thing we would do is, I might have even actually showed this to you one time, Brian, I can't remember, but we had these composition books. So they're like these fairly sturdy notebooks with lots of pages. And every day we would get creative time to like do an art project. And basically all of mine are drawing different new made up Power Rangers or like, the Power Rangers and new scenes. It's fairly incomprehensible because I was really bad at drawing and writing. And so you could never know what I was trying to write. Sometimes you could tell it was like a new color Ranger, but I would always draw me next to the, the pink Ranger. Sometimes like me standing or sitting on top of her, which I 
attribute to be my first recognition of physical feelings towards a uh, a female. Nice. Yes. She is ridiculously good looking, and I am very glad to look in your notes here and see that she was 25 when this movie was made. The villains even are like, wow, she's really good looking in the, in the movie. So they they call it out. They knew what they had there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, and I was surprised again to, to come back and watch this and determine that my six-year-old self had good taste. I agree that she was extremely beautiful here. Although I will point out, one of the things I always appreciated about the Power Rangers, as I thought back on it, I'm not sure if I ever thought about it in the moment, but that it was cool that it was like all of these kids, you know, fairly different personalities and cliques and groups and like strengths and weaknesses, fighting styles, they would all come together. They were a team. They were on equal footing. You know, there was sort of the de facto leader. It was usually the the Red Ranger or, you know, one of the one of the guys, but it was like always together and like nobody was kind of put down or lesser for being something different. I agree. Yeah. And so going back here, two things really pissed me off. And one is that they constantly put the pink ranger and the yellow ranger. So the pink ranger is still here. Uh, Amy Jo Johnson playing Kimberly and the yellow ranger is Aisha Campbell. And the actress is named Karen Ashley. And Aisha, she's a black woman. She and Kimberly are constantly like in danger. They're captured, grabbed by the monster. And one of the boys has to go and rescue her. And they get to scream because they're the damsel in distress for half a scene. And I, I thought that like emphasizing that so much was against the spirit of Power Rangers, in my opinion. Yeah, I noticed that as well. And one person we haven't name dropped at all is Tommy. And we might have different feelings about Tommy, but Tommy was the famous Green Ranger who was introduced later on. I think by the end of season one, he was there as sort of a rogue anti-ranger created by Rita Repulsa, the villain, who was going to infiltrate them and defeat them. But then they gradually turn him good and he becomes like Gandalf the White and he's the White Ranger. Yeah, the the Green Ranger arc was like the first like serialized dramatic arc that my young mind ever encountered and I was just blown away by it how there was this evil ranger and this looming date there was like something that had to do with a candle and it was so exciting and dramatic and then like the greatest twist ever the bad guy became the good guy and he joined their team and so now we had this new hero to root for on the team who had this cool new outfit he well he doesn't just join the team is the thing he he takes it over somehow he usurps jason and i i'm just not sure how that happened how that came to be yeah so as a kid i loved tommy i thought he was cooler than all the other ones he was like more commanding he had long hair he he was just he was a bamf and as I was watching this, I was pissed off. I was like, he, he's the guy who thinks that he's the cool kid in the group, that he's better than everyone. He can tell everyone what to do for no apparent reason. He was ordering people around and being and like giving commands. And I was like, get over yourself, Tommy. Also, he was apparently tw- only 22 when this is filmed. He looks more like 30 to 35, I would say. He does not look at all like a teenager. But relevant to what you were talking about a moment ago of some rangers are more equal than others. 
there is a lot of shipping between Tommy and Kimberly in this film. So the Wikipedia notes call Kimberly. It's even see this is like more of the messed up gen- gender stuff. Pink Ranger, comma Tommy's girlfriend. I didn't think it was necessarily explicitly stated that they were boyfriend and girlfriend, but there is like strong vibes towards that throughout. Seems like you read those vibes as well. Yeah, they have a lot of tender moments where it's like just them. And a lot of like, you know, Kimberly gets trapped under a rock and she yells, Tommy, not, yeah, not, you know, there's a whole team out here. (laughs) Everybody is equally in a power suit with a giant robot. It's like, you don't have to pick just one. Agreed. Yeah. So I encountered this series when I was really young, and I have some memories from back then. Uh, But luckily, like within the past year during the pandemic, I was binging various shows, and I watched most of season one of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers on Netflix. Oh, nice. And something I really came to appreciate that I had never noticed before is that in every teen scene, like where it's the, the American actors as their human teen selves not wearing their power ranger getups they are always dressed in wardrobe that is color themed to the color that they are uh, the ranger of and what's fantastic about it is it's not always the same clothes not even across a whole episode it's like every single scene they have a whole new wardrobe oh man and the costume designers must have absolutely gone ham with this project because I loved seeing like every frame of these human scenes. And I just want to take some <laughs> screen grabs and like stick them with magnets to the inside of my locker in middle school or something. Oh man. Like, so here's Trini in the yellow outfit of the scene, but she always had to have a yellow outfit. Poor Zach. I feel like Zach wearing all black got the, the rough end of that one. He, he actually had some good ones. He had like stripes and okay. I don't know, different patterns. Very, all very 90s. This whole undertaking that we're talking about today is extremely 90s. Yeah. Well, I have some more thoughts on both the series and the characters in the, in the movie. I figure we can just jump into the movie, and as this topics come up, we can address them. So, you ready to, to hop in? Go, go, Power Rangers. So, the movie opens with a narrated Star Wars-style text crawl that concludes with an exploding Power Rangers logo. And this basically kind of level sets the franchise and the story. So we can just kind of hop right in and have what essentially amounts to a triple sized or quadruple sized episode of the Power Rangers with much higher SFX, I guess. And uh, the opening scene is a skydiving scene. And here we do, in fact, see that all six of the Rangers are there and they all have skydiving outfits that match their ranger color so kimberly's is a pink parachute and uh rocky he's the the red ranger for this movie i think this is the only time that that rocky appeared as a character has a red one and also there are bulk and skull so it's the six rangers and bulk and skull doing skydiving we're not given much context at the start we're just kind of thrown into it and it's a it's a, a striking opening for a few reasons. The first is that they actually do skydive and it's filmed like with the camera skydiving with them. Like I'm pretty sure that they were if not skydiving, this wasn't like simulated. They were jumping from something. It was really cool looking. 
Yeah, I was wondering how much of it was actually those actors and how much was stunt doubles, but it was really compellingly shot. They do like flips and stuff in the air, and it's it's scored to higher ground, uh, cover by the Red Hot Chili Peppers of the Stevie Wonder classic. And one theme throughout this movie is the soundtrack is actually pretty good. It's some of it is kind of corny, but there was a lot of strong memory, emotional nostalgia pulls when they would do a needle drop on. Uh, oh, here's the uh oh we're in trouble song, and here's the the cover of uh, Free Ride that is in a couple scenes from now. Yeah, I had never seen this movie before, but numerous times as I was watching, a song would come up, and I was like, "Huh, this is actually really good." I got to track <laughs> this down separate from the movie after I watch. We had the soundtrack when I was a kid, and it got a lot of play, and. I'll jump ahead to the credits scene real quick. I, I don't know if all movies do this. This has three different pop songs during the credits, and all of them are awesome and forever stuck in my head. One of them is the, it's called Trouble. Uh-oh, We're in Trouble by Shampoo. One of them is a remix of Kung Fu Fighting called Kung Fu Dancing. And then there's a song called The Alpha Song, or I I I which is like this rock song where the chorus is them saying, I, 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 like the, the robot sidekick that we're going to meet in a couple scenes here. So just good music plastered everywhere with the downside that throughout much of the middle portion in the climax, it's sidelined in favor of kind of your typical dramatic orchestral score. So as I mentioned, the, the six rangers are skydiving and along with them are Balkan Skull. Yeah, can you explain Balkan Skull for us? Bulk and Skull are the comic relief bully characters. And I love Bulk and Skull. They might be the best part of Power Rangers. Bulk and is this really kind of large fella. And Skull is this really skinny neurotic guy who has like kind of this annoying laugh. And in this show, they had this theme that I could never get out of my head. And I think I've sent to you at least once over chat, Brian, but it's this little tune that goes and it's just this kind of annoying little song that uh i don't know it's it's like a part of my dna because I, how much i watched that show when i was a kid it, it always makes me smile when i hear it yeah i feel like i could watch a show where it was all of these characters interacting at the high school and they never become power rangers i agree i would watch that just no <laughs> monster fights at all during this rewatch, seeing Balkan Skull in the opening couple of scenes gave me the false hope that there would be a strong Balkan Skull presence throughout the film. But we end up just seeing them at the beginning and then at the end. But they make an impact when they are, in fact, on screen. So like here when they're skydiving, they have these hilarious outfits. Uh, Balk is wearing one of those old-fashioned caps with a propeller on top, and they like almost jump out of the plane without their parachutes and... It's pretty funny. One other notable thing about we're still on the first scene. It's just setting the tone, though. There's Power Rangers, mid-1990s, cool for boys. You wouldn't be surprised to learn that they leaned into the extreme uh, kind of mindset that was big in the 90s with the, the X Games and skateboarding and, and I don't know, that, that whole kind of mindset. 
Yeah, um, so many things. The X Games, like you said, they had the XFL. I feel like the atomic purple plastic they put on the N64 variant, that factors into it. Just like radical colors and seeing through technology. Yeah. And wearing your baseball cap backwards. That's 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 everywhere here. And of course, Tommy, the leader and the cool guy, he straps a board to his feet like he's air surfing. Everyone else is just skydiving and he's got this board that that's on his feet, which, again, when I was seven, I thought was the coolest thing ever. But now it just seemed kind of ridiculous to me when I was watching this time. And this brings me to something I shared with you last night, Brian, is when I was about this age, I had this theory on life that everything was just getting cooler and cooler. Like I didn't know what fads were. I thought that anything that, that happened now was like the coolest thing that had ever happened. And so when Tommy joined, yeah, he was, he was more of a no nonsense, do things my own way, tell people what to do, long hair, badass. Like, okay, power interest is getting cooler. Oh, people are skateboarding more. Okay. Skateboarding's cool now. And it wasn't until I was, I don't know, in middle school that I realized that like things go in and out of fashion and whatever is cool now is not necessarily the coolest thing ever. I love this theory, this <laughs> rule of evolution of coolness. The coolest thing just always wins out. Yeah. That things are just progressively getting more radical and <laughs> extreme and have been throughout all of history and will always continue. Right. And I hold out hope that somewhere at least this is true. That they never let go of that late 90s, 90s into early 2000s dream. <laughs> I, I feel like Poochie, the character that gets added to Itchy and Scratchy on The Simpsons to like have an attitude. And then is quickly written out and returns to his home planet. I, I hope that on Poochie's home planet, the law of coolness holds true. Yeah, coolness evolution, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and Poochie is making fun of the exact mindset that I have of things need to become more extreme and cool over time. Like, that's just the way things go. When when they land from their skydiving, we learn that it's all part of a fundraiser for a coming comet named Ryan's Comet. As I was listening, I thought it was Orion's Comet, which at least sounds kind of spacey, but it's just Ryan's Comet. Like, like the name, R-Y-A-N, I don't know. Acor at least according to Wikipedia. One of the people in attendance at the fundraiser is this kid, our, our child actor, our stand-in for the child audience, named Fred Kelman. He does have a backwards baseball cap. He's introduced as one of Tommy's martial arts students, and he is maybe a 6 out of 10 on the annoying child actor scale. What, what did you think? So, for sure, he is like a wonder twin. He is a character who has been thrown in amongst the older superheroes to just be a child avatar for the kids watching, like you said. He did not annoy me as much as Jansen, though, from a, a while back. I, <laughs> yeah. I could accept Fred, I guess his name is, as a like a base level of background annoyance. He, he could just be white noise to me. I think that's fair. Maybe more like a 4 out of 10 on the annoyance factor. He... Because he kind of blends in with everything else. We immediately jump to another scene of the Rangers doing something extreme. This time with another cool classic rock background song. 
This time they're rollerblading in their color-coded outfits. And the song in the background is a cover of Free Ride, which I did not know was a cover when I was a kid. I, it was one of my favorite songs off the soundtrack, but I've since learned was a 60s or 70s rock song that actually might have initially been a Christian rock song, but it's general enough in its lyrics that you don't have to uh, interpret it that way. Something about the colored outfits in this part of the movie early on is that they're kind of dominated by white. All of the outfits they've got on are kind of uniform. They're all, at least for a chunk of the movie, um, sleeveless. Like, no, no sleeves. Sleeves aren't cool. Sleeves aren't radical. But, like, the colors are highlights. And I just took this as part of my conspiracy theory that they just really wanted Tommy to dominate. It's like, <laughs> every, everything is Tommy. Even the other colors are just, like, decorations to b- accompany the Tomminess. Interesting. At, at least Tommy isn't blonde. If he was blonde, I would be worried about the Aryan vibes. This is the last time I will make such a remark, I promise. But uh, Kimberly at this point is has like a white crop top and these high rise pink shorts. And it is a good look for her, for sure. And it is something I feel like you could rock today. Yeah, I think she could still rock it today. She goes to cons and stuff. Oh, does she? I think she, I saw that she's someone on Cameo. We should have we should have booked a Cameo with her. <laughs> Maybe for next week. At last, we see Balkan Skull landing and they they land at a construction site and it's one of the funnier moments for me but i loved everything about balkan skull by the way speaking of balkan skull you brought up just a moment ago jansen panettiere who starred in the last day of summer and one of my favorite things about that movie is that the bully was named meat and i think even at the time you made a balkan skull reference but just naming your bully characters with words like that, meat, skull, bulk. It's just great. And I think all stories and shows should do that. And one thing I didn't know until I saw this on Wikipedia is that's not just their nicknames, but Bulk's character name is Farkas Bulkmeyer. So Bulk comes from his last name. And Skull's character is named Eugene Skullovich. So it also comes from his name. But... I'm, I'm laughing at Farkas. That's... <laughs> I, I enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. So they land and they look completely ridiculous with their parachutes and the construction workers walk up to them and say, what are you doing here? And they act like they're building inspectors. And uh, Skull says, yeah, wait, why is that building there? It was supposed to be over there. And I just thought it was, I don't remember this being funny to me as a kid, but these complete idiots pretending they're building inspectors saying you're building the building in the wrong place gave me a pretty hearty laugh. They seem to get some credibility from the construction workers. They're like, oh, we got to be accountable. There's a subreddit called Act Like You Belong, and they they were given some of that energy here. Right. For the last three weeks, I've actually been working as a construction worker. Oh, really? So, yeah, that's something new that I'm trying out. And I don't know. I, I don't know how committed I am to it yet. But there was a notable presence of construction workers throughout this film made you feel one with the movie that's right it felt timely (laughs) Uh, also though it seems of the times in 1995 to uncover something in a construction site because in jumanji also a 1995 film of course young alan parrish digs the cursed board game out of a dirt wall at a construction site 
1996, of course, the Animorphs would receive their powers from the Andalites at a construction site. Interesting. It's a good story structure. It's a way that a normal kid just wandering the neighborhood could come across it. Um, because indeed, the construction workers, after kind of blowing off Bulk and Skull, go and look at this thing that they've uncovered. And I was laughing because it's so big. It's like, how could they be just discovering this? It's like protruding out of the ground and like six feet in diameter. It's this kind of canister with a sewer-like top. And they use a bit of machinery to pull it open. And out comes this kind of creepy monkey's claw looking hand with three fingers that has this giant purple egg in the middle. And it's the first use, first time we see this shade of purple, which is one of the primary aesthetic elements of this film is just this astonishing hue of purple that I, I really love. Yeah, more great use of color. And it's in contrast to the rainbow colors of the Power Rangers. Right, well, it's a ranger. It's a color that we've never seen on a ranger. There's never been a purple ranger, so now we've got this purple presence. That's right, yeah. So the rangers are summoned to the command center, which is where their kind of boss is this spiritual being, Zordon, who's kind of in the, supposedly in a time warp, but is depicted as a kind of floating face Wizard of Oz in this metallic cylinder, all sorts of like fake gadgetry going on in here. And then Alpha is the robot assistant with like a UFO shaped head, flying saucer shaped head that lights up. And to me, this was always like, when I thought of a robot, I thought of Alpha 5. It was like the original robot. Alpha and Zordon tell the rangers that they can detect the presence of Ivan Ooze, a supervillain who was on the brink of world domination 6,000 years ago before some ancient version of the Power Rangers took him down. And then we cut back to the construction site and the main TV series villains, so you mentioned their names earlier, there's Rita Repulsa, there's also Lord Zed. He was this kind of creepy looking guy without skin, but with a metal exoskeleton and this staff that had a Z on the top of it that I always thought was awesome as a kid. He's got like a scary brain head. Yeah. And then Goldar is like this, I guess he's a wolf or something in this gold armor with a sword. Yeah, he's kind of like a werewolf with wings. Right. And lastly, Mordant, who is a pig kind of minion. I did not remember him ever being in the show, and I looked it up and confirmed, and they just invented him for this movie. And he has really good presence in the movie. He has a lot of lines that actually made me smile or laugh. I thought he was a good side villain character. Kind of got the squeaky voice. Yeah, early on, Goldar was paired with Babu, who was a guy who also had a monocle that seems carried over onto the pig. So he's kind of got some trappings of that older character, but he's new here. So they go to this purple egg at the construction site and Lord Zed uses his Z staff to shoot lightning. Lots of shooting of lightning in the Power Rangers. Like think the Emperor from Star Wars shooting lightning out of his fingers. That's like a, a motif of somebody using evil powers typically. And this causes the, the egg to open and out comes Ivan Ooze 
who was played by Paul Freeman. I was like, this guy has to be a real actor. He's too good compared to everyone else to not be a real actor. And I looked it up, and he's actually the same guy who played Belloc in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he has some villain background in his DNA. That's really funny. I didn't notice that. I saw the name in the credits. It's like, I've seen that name before. Who is that? Yeah, you were just quoting him a couple episodes ago, too. So I like that he lives in a silly putty egg, I gotta say. I know, yeah. It's goopy. He is, if not the, the highlight of the movie, he's up there. Because he is always hamming and quipping and cackling evil laughter. He leans into it, and he's just a delight. The quips are funny-ish, but his delivery of them are always good. And he doesn't have to like do like villainy kung fu things at all except for when he inhabits a monster towards the end but in general he just has to walk around cackling and and making lines and stuff and he's very good at it so the rangers now informed of ivan ooze's presence go to look for him and so they go to the construction site and kimberly gives a line that i can only now read as intentional ironically bad and funny And there are some times when this movie crosses into that territory. And she says to the construction worker, um, have you seen a morphological being around here? And sure enough, right then, uh, the construction worker transforms into Ivan Ooze. And I felt like as I was watching this, I I was like, I thought, is this going to be a recurring thing where he, he like disguises himself and you don't know if it's him or someone else. But this is basically the only time when he is not recognizably Ivan Ooze. So his whole ability to transform into other things, maybe not taken full advantage of. Yeah, I agree. Not enough mystiquing. Yeah, yeah. When the the rangers kind of approach him, he's snarky about him, and he he summons his first batch of minions. He's got a variety of minions throughout this film, and I appreciated that they were always different. So the first batch of them is are these creepy dreadlocked guys that have purple skin to match Ivanus. And they, we get some handheld camera zoom-ins on them. It kind of pans back and forth across them. That made me think of Troll 2. Maybe this is just like a B-movie trope, B-movie technique of introducing something creepy. But isn't there something in Troll 2 when they do like a similar thing, when they like scope around the monsters with this handheld? Yeah, and look at the short little goblins. I, I'm picking up what you're putting down, and I'm glad that you brought Troll 2 into discussion because watching back... Billy, the Blue Ranger, definitely reminds me of Arnold from Troll 2. Oh, man, I can actually see that, yeah. I thought this movie should have had more Billy. That was, he's like the highlight for me watching it, just because he gets all these techno babble lines that I don't really buy that he's a nerd. I don't know. It's just like they wanted to have him say something ridiculous. Yeah. Similar to the morphological being line you just pointed out. Well, there's a lot of those ridiculous babble, some of which goes to Ivan Ooze and some of which gets shared around the other characters. Just one other thing about the minions. I'm glad we got a variety here, and I'm, I kind of like that none of them were putties, because in the early seasons, or just at the very beginning of Power Rangers, Rita, every episode would make these things called putties that were people in, like, gray body sock suits that kind of look like the Greendale human being from Community. When I was four years old, that's like my clearest memory of Power Rangers <laughs> from back in the day, is being very afraid of the putties. 
That's pretty funny. This is when we get our first kung fu hand-to-hand combat action scene. So I want to briefly describe what kung fu looks like in the Power Rangers universe. There's very little adherence to physical rules and reality and like often the suspension of disbelief will shift drastically like it'll be hard punches and then all of a sudden one of them will be jumping and doing flying corkscrews in the air and stuff and there's so many exaggerated whooshing sound effects like kind of how i imagine you know the batman when they write out the sound effects like that that is what this actually sounds like and you can't go more than maybe two and a half seconds without one of the rangers making a quip. Throws two minions together. Now kiss and make up. And, and lots and lots of quipping going on. Lots of flying and jumping too. It made me think of, I haven't actually seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but I know that that's famous for the characters flying in the air and kung fuing together. And I, I am certain that they were not inspired by Power Rangers, but part of me likes to dream that maybe... Maybe somebody saw Power Rangers, or more likely a actual Asian karate movie that Power Rangers was based off of, and uh, incorporated that into Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Right. And I think a lot of stuff, a lot of these influences are also in, like, Xena Warrior Princess that also kicked off in 1995. Certainly, like, hop a little ways into the air and then suspend there and kick someone in the face was very much the move at this time. The last thing about these kung fu scenes, when characters are going from one place to another, and here I mean the heroes, the Power Rangers, they're going from one place to another. They certainly can't walk, and they also can't run. They have to do handspring flips, forwards and backwards. And there are a few times where they'll be like, oh, let's go help this person. And rather than just like step over there, like two of the characters will handspring in unison flips over to where they need to go. It's a little bit ludicrous. But after this fight, the rangers can't defeat the minions, so they have to morph into their ranger form. The first time we see their their ranger form and we see them morph, that was always an iconic thing for me as a kid. Each of the characters says them, but here they got it in the wrong order. It's always got to end in Tyrannosaurus, but this one didn't end in Tyrannosaurus. Tyrannosaurus! That was once you heard that you knew the action was about to happen, but I think they ended with Mastodon here. Okay, uh, well another thing, Tommy has a white tiger. When he's the White Ranger, he turns into a white tiger, but they already have a tiger. Yellow is a tiger. Yeah, saber tooth tiger. Yeah, good call on that one. They had to be they, get more creative. Tommy, when he was green, had a dragon, which was awesome. But then they why couldn't he just be a white dragon instead of a green dragon? Good point. It's also where we get our first blast of the face-melting Go-Go Power Rangers in the film. As the uh, the Rangers are kind of morphing and they're, they end up, they can't find the dreadlock minions anywhere, so they have to go hunt for them. We see Ivan Ooze go into the command center and basically, without missing a beat, completely destroy Zordon just by shooting the energy out of his fingertips and blowing up all the gadgetry inside. And... As he's shooting this lightning, he laments all of the vile things that he missed during his 6,000 years of slumber. And the three things he lists are the Black Plague, the Spanish Inquisition, the Brady Bunch Reunion, which I didn't know what any of those things were as a kid, but was a joke I appreciated now that I'm 32. 
as the rangers are looking for these these uh, dreadlocked minions, they have to go to the spooky warehouse where they're they're kind of hiding. And a couple of funny things here. One is just how quippy they always needed to be saying one-liners. And back to back, they said, "This place gives me the creeps. I got a bad feeling about this place." First of all, both of those are cliches for something is about to happen. Just saying one of those would already be a cliche, but it just raised it to a new level that they said both of those cliches like within three seconds of each other. And at one point, the Yellow Ranger needs says, okay, it's dark in here, activating power beam. And she taps a button on her head and a flashlight turns on. Apparently the power beam is a flashlight, which made me laugh. Yeah, it's not a great superpower. If if everyone already has it, uh, you know, it may not be strapped to our heads, but it easily could be. So you don't have to stretch your imagination too far to accept the power beam. So then now the, the rain, they do find the dreadlock guys. They have another kung fu scene and ultimately defeat the minions. And as the minions die, they kind of melt into the ooze, the Ivan ooze purple goo. But just as they are achieving victory they are demorphed back into their teen selves and they kind of hurry over to the command center where they see zordon has exited his time warp and now he's just like a pasty old guy in a gray turtleneck lying on some crystals back where the the time warp thing had been and we're giving hints he might die soon he utters some obi-wan kenobi mentor type lines and Alpha, the, the assistant robot who somehow survived all this, says there's one last hope. The Rangers can go get, quote, the great power. I, they needed to come up with a better name for that because they just kept calling it the great power on some distant planet called Phaedos. But of course, the, he warns them it's a dangerous planet and uses his last bit of energy to send all of the Rangers to Phaedos. So we kind of set up our, our parallel uh, action here. The Ivan Ooze is setting about his conquering Earth while the Rangers are trying to go find the great power on Phaedos. So Ivan Ooze heads towards uh, the bad guy's palace. He becomes the new Lord of Evil by putting Rita and Lord Zed in a snow globe and Goldar and Morden to agree to serve him. He also creates these uh, our next batch of minions, the Tengu Warriors who are these bird-like creatures. And apparently they ended up carrying over to the show. And the, I got serious vibes of the flying monkeys from The Wizard of Oz, which I watched not too long ago. They like jump out a window and have like this unrealistic flying motion. Yeah, these things are creepy. They're like crows. The feathers are pretty good. They have wings that are basically just arms and then they have these big human legs dangling down. The bird-like face upon human proportions made me think of Chuck E. Cheese and Rockafire Explosion. Is one of those characters a bird or a duck or something like that? Oh yeah, the loony bird that comes out of the trash can. Yeah. So on, on Phaedos, the rangers arrive and it's this desolate, rocky planet, probably just filmed in Arizona or something like that, but meant to be kind of very uh, dangerous. And there's like these skeletons everywhere. And we see this mysterious cloaked shaman type figure standing on a cliff, gazing over them. And the rangers are kind of exploring and the Tengu warriors appear and they start to attack the rangers. And uh, even though they're kind of unmorphed, they can still do their Kung Fu just as the teenagers, but it's, it's insufficient. 
to defeat the Tengu warriors. And just as things are going badly, by the way, things going badly, I mean, one of the birds has picked up Kimberly so she can shriek for Tommy to come rescue her. This shaman figure emerges and throws off her cloak. And it turns out it's actually not like a creepy old guy. Like I was getting vibes of Tim from Monty Python and the Holy Grail or whatever. I was thinking of that too. The way that this character shows up on like a spire of rock and it was very similarly shot to Tim the Enchanter showing up. But she throws her cloak off and it is a beautiful woman, an Amazonian type warrior named Dulcia or Dulcia, I forget how you pronounce it. And she makes short order of the Tengu warriors using her staff, which she breaks in two and spins to make like a high-pitched whistling noise. Yeah, it's like a bull roarer. It goes like wah, 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 wah. And she's like threatening the kids, telling them to go back. But she softens up when they mention they're trying to save Zordon, who she apparently knows. One review I read of this movie described Dulcia. Dul- Is it Dulcia? Do you know? Do you remember? Yeah, I think I think they said Dulcia. Yeah. She was, quote, a character for the dads who brought their kids to the Cineplex. She's a scantily clad, beautiful woman who is kind of paraded in front of the camera. She's got this green outfit that kind of winds around her like poison ivy, and there's a lot of skin on display. Meanwhile, back on Earth, as we're kind of hopping back and forth, Ivan Ooze takes over a factory, I guess some sort of abandoned factory, to create something called Ivan's Ooze, which will control the minds of the parents of Angel Grove. Uh, By the way, one recurring joke that I did not recognize as a joke as a kid, but do now, is Rita's goal was always to take over first Angel Grove, then the world. And how like Angel Grove appears to be like a suburb of LA or something like that. So the idea that you all you have to do is take over Angel Grove and then you're well on your path to taking over the world is, is a very humorous one. But we get an exaggerated one here. He says, I think it's first Angel Grove and then the universe or then the galaxy or something like that. But it's it's the same type of joke. I do like Angel Grove is the name of a fictional town, though. Yeah, it is, it's a good one. So he sh- shoots his purple lightning and it makes all the factory stuff spit out purple liquid, which turns into Ivan's ooze. And she puts in little jars, like a Vaseline jar. And he goes to, I don't know where he was. It was like a carnival or something like that, where all the kids were. And he's kind of put on a costume as like a wizard, clown, huckster type guy standing up on a table calling out to all the kids who are kind of all paying attention to him. And he has this little sales pitch rhyme, which I memorized as a kid and is one of my favorite bits of the movie. So I'm just going to read it real quick. So he says, guys and girls, girls and guys gather round and feast your eyes. I promise you all you just can't lose when you got your own supply of Ivan zoos. And the kid says, what are we supposed to do with it? Show it to your parents, show it to your friends. When you've got your ooze, the fun never ends. This is kind of gross, one of the kids says when he opens it and it's just like purple goo in there, like silly putty, basically. And then Avenue says, You may have heard the phrase that looks can be deceiving. I'm sure that when you've tried it, you all will be believing. And the best part, it's free! And then he just starts handing out canisters of it. Take it home in boxes. Take it home in cases. If your parents try to stop you, just throw it in their faces. And the, the horde of kids give a maniacal cheer at this last line. I always liked that when I was a kid. 
yeah, this bit turned me around a little on Ivan Ooze. Uh, up to this point, I just thought he was trying to do a Beetlejuice impression. He keeps doing this thing where he, like, puts his hands up by the side of his head that felt very Beetlejuice. Like, it's showtime! But this, when he is in the wizard garb and doing the rhyme, I, I gained a new appreciation for him. Also, way to predict the slime craze, like, 15 years ahead of time. In 2010, Ivan's Ooze would be making bank. Well, hold on, though, because I feel like the slime craze comes from about... It, its seeds were from about this time. It wasn't just Ivan News. I guess you're right, because there was there was um, GAC, right? And, and Nickelodeon had the whole thing where you were on a game show, and if you got the question wrong, they would pour a vat of green slime on you. True. Back on planet Phytos, um, Dulcia guides the ranger to the spiritual temple where they get new spirit animals. So, Brian, did you have a note on this? I do. They already have spirit animals. (laughs) Kind of their whole thing is having spirit animals. And they're dinosaurs, which is the coolest animal you can be, especially in the early 90s. So to suddenly be told by this mystical, near-nude woman you just met that you need to embrace your spirit animal, when that's been your whole thing for years, just feels like a slap in the face from somebody who doesn't know you yeah this was my first experience to them iterating through themes of things that the power rangers would be associated with so first it was dinosaurs and now here it's like i guess asian themed animals like ninja themed because their power is called the ninjetti i don't know what exactly ninjetti is but they just keep saying ninjetti so apparently that's something yeah so like they were going to take on their ninja roles in the next season and that's the reason for all of this it's like that's what happens in the next block of footage they have from japan so (laughs) we need to be ready for that come what may we got to make it work somehow as they they meet all of their new animals dulcia goes one-to-one and tells them what they are and the black ranger here so Zack is from the show who was the black guy who was the black ranger is one of the people to not return to the movie. He is now played by this Asian man who is the only one who is plausibly a teenager. Like he's kind of skinny and young looking. And it turns out he actually was the only one who was a teenager when this was filmed. He was 19. But uh, he's like, oh, I'm a frog. He's sad about it. Because to be fair, frog is way less imposing than, first of all, any dinosaur, but even most of the other animals. I mean, Kimberly's a crane, which, you know, cranes are kind of cool. They got, like, the grace element to them, I guess. But a frog, I don't blame him for being a little dispirited by it, although, in retrospect, that would be kind of cool to be the frog guy. I don't know. Like, it's got a little more personality than some of the other ones. Yeah, his robot's kind of cool. That was a toy I had as a kid, was one of the, from McDonald's Happy Meal, we got like three or four of the rangers and one of them was the black frog with red eyes on the, and the paint would gradually scrape off over time. That was one we had for years and years. But then she explains, here's why you should be okay with being a frog. Well, when the princess kisses a frog, he turns into a prince. But what does that have to do with him being a spirit animal and being like your kind of guiding force that you philosophically align with? I feel like she needed something better than that, like... Frog may be small, but it can contain the strongest poison and most power of all, or something like that. She did not have a good rebuttal to, why do I have to be the the lame little frog? 
Well, she kissed him, so there's a little bit of a trade-off. That's true. I guess that was the the win for him there. Back at an Angel Grove on Earth, whenever the parents come in contact with the Ivan Ooze, they are mind-controlled by Ivan Ooze, like Pied Piper style, and go march over to Ivan Ooze's headquarters, and he basically forces them into manual labor, and we get a little bit where they do like silly tap dances when the the bad guys order them to they're like zombies at this point their project is to unearth ectomorphicons another bit of nonsense sci-fi babble who are two buried super powerful robotic creatures that are going to be ivan oozes kind of keys to world domination here and as they're unearthed and assembled ivan ooze has everything he needs from the parents so he orders them to leap to their doom Fred, the annoying little kid, happens to be around and overhears this. And he's going to ultimately try to prevent these parents from leaping to their doom. But we meet the ectomorphicons. And it's our our first real experience with CGI. We got a little bit of it when Ivan Ooze came to life out of the egg. But we kind of see these two CGI monsters. One of them is kind of an ant and one of them is kind of a scorpion. And I have to say... The CGI in this movie is not good. It is like PlayStation 2 fighting game level bad. It is just... I mean, there's an effect at one point where Ivan Ooze takes control of one of the ectomorphicons and he kind of turns into this goop as he stretches over to the ectomorphicon. And it might be the single worst effect in cinema history. It It is so ugly. It looks like when you drag like if you're in windows 95 if one of your windows froze and you dragged it around you would see like the whole window clipping dragging it leaving a dragging pattern it looks like they basically just applied that effect in 15 minutes from this ivan ooze actor to the uh the creature but everything cgi here is i mean this came out the same year as toy story and the fact that they were like in the same approximate universe is kind of dispiriting because they're not able to get anything good out of the cgi in this film what what did you think of the cgi yeah up to this point i was getting ready to praise it actually for its restraint uh because the only time we'd really seen it you know, a couple of like morphing shots with of Ivan Ooze like shape shifting, and it looked okay there. Uh, and then there's a scene when they first arrive on the the danger planet where they meet Dulcia, where there's a bone dragon that like comes out of a pit of bones, and I thought that looked pretty good. But then the robots here, I mean, they're whatever. They're shiny, which is usually an easy enough thing to show in CGI because it's like simple shapes and it's just reflective. But then later on, the Zords are CGI now, which, oh, it just, it hurts me because normally the Zords coming out is when you get the cool, like almost stop motion-y effects in the original show. Like, you get a shot, and it's always the same shot, because I'm sure it cost a lot to make it, so they just reuse it, but of, like, the T-Rex coming up out of a volcano, and the pterodactyl, like, shooting out of a mountain, and it's all these little miniatures that they have, and it's sorely missing here. I completely agree. As we'll see here, the entire climax, like, everything up until now, you're right, restraint is the correct word little flashes of it to show that they had the budget and the technology, but still most of the scenes were like actual hand-to-hand combat, like what you would see on the TV show, like very physical. 
and practical effects based work on the TV show when the big creatures would fight it would be the Megazord versus a monster and the Megazord is just a dude in a suit and you could tell it was a dude in a suit that was okay it was still kind of cool looking against miniatures of a city if they were in a city or whatever but here the CGI the movie's way worse off with it and the fact that basically the whole climax here is going to devolve into one CGI monstrosity battling another CGI monstrosity really sucked the wind out of the movie at this point, in my opinion. Like, it basically bumped the whole movie grade down a point for me on the, the is it good scale because it just dampens what had already had been thus far a fairly fun, but like actually kind of well made to some extent movie, at least like the things within it, like the costumes are good. The Kung Fu is like clearly not, if you were actually into karate type movies, you probably wouldn't find much joy here, but from like a very simple minded approach of you want to see them doing flips and punches and stuff. It's, it's pretty entertaining and it's pretty varied and creative. And I don't know, like the movie was kind of pleasantly campy, not atrociously bad up until this point. And I, I think once they get to the climax, it takes a turn for the worse and, and not in a fun way. But uh, before we actually get to that that CGI climax, the Power Rangers need to actually get to their quote-unquote great power. So they have to set out on this to like this monolith, I think they call it. And they encounter a few creatures there. You, you mentioned the skeleton monsters, which were mostly like practical effects monsters. That was a pretty cool thing. They get to the actual monolith. There's like war, these guardian type guys who are like, they have maces and they're kind of creature-looking things that are kind of more what I expect from the monsters in the Power Ranger universe. They have some battles with those. But I thought some of these these battle scenes were pretty good ones. At last, they get their great power. They remorph out of their fake ninja color-coded garb into their ranger suits, their morph suits, and they zap back to Earth. So back on Earth, the parents are, are planning to jump to their doom Yeah, this scene of the parents marching around in construction worker gear chanting, Leap to our doom, leap to our doom, leap to our doom, is something I definitely felt having worked the last two weeks all overnight shifts until four in the morning. (laughs) That's, That's what I'm feeling when I come home in my construction hat. Leap to my doom, leap to my doom. You, you empathize with it. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yep. So Fred, having overheard that the parents are going to leap to their doom, goes to recruit the other kids to help. And where they go, it's like, I don't know if it's a shopping mall or what it is, but it's scored to that Uh-Oh, We're in Trouble song. And they're like kind of living this decadent parent-free life. They're eating food and playing with ooze. And I don't know. It's only on screen for like 15 seconds, but this left an outsized impact on me when I was a kid. For me, this is like what it meant to, when you heard partying. Like this is when cool kids were partying or, or, or doing stuff. This is what it meant. Eating pizza on tables while punk music blasts in the background and everything's kind of purple and obnoxious. Yeah, they're all wearing the ooze purple color now, which I guess is because they've all been playing with the ooze. But it's just another master stroke from the costuming department. They've all got like ooze purple headbands and uh, sleeveless purple shirts and purple vests. So they get within a few feet of the ledge and 
the kids are like trying to form a human wall to prevent them from jumping. And Fred, our tween avatar, the one that when I was seven years old, I wanted to be, has this brilliant idea. He's going to be the leader. He's going to be the hero here. And so he recruits Bulk and Skull, who for whatever reason are there. I don't know why they were there. Maybe they were partying with the kids. I guess they were also supposed to be teens, even though they look even less like teens than Tommy did. And they go into the construction site and pull up this crane with like this high-powered hose. And their idea is that they're going to blast the parents to prevent them from going off the edge. That like the, the force of the water will push them back sufficiently to prevent them from walking off the cliff, which is just a horrible idea. I don't know why he, he thought this would work or why it ended up working. Because first of all, the kids are actually the people being like the kids who are trying to hold the parents back are the people actually hit by this high powered hose. And that would be like really painful. If a water pressure is enough that it's pushing you backwards, that is going to hurt as it hits you. But it doesn't really seem to bother them at all. I, I don't know. And it's like played as heroically here. And it just it seems very dangerous because it requires a lot of precision to have this work at all. Otherwise, you just blow them off the edge. And you can only <laughs> hit one person at a time, and it's a whole wall of people. So how are you going to make this work? I'm so <laughs> glad that we're on the same page here. This is, I guess, their holding pattern until I don't know what. I guess they're just trying to hope something else will happen. But and in fact, something else does happen because the rangers have appeared back on Earth. They get in their zords. They, they battle these ectomorphicons and in, in bad CGI for a bit. They get into their Megazord. They manage to defeat one. And this is where that, that effect I mentioned where Ivan Ooze inhabits the other occurs, where we get a bad CGI face model of Paul Freeman placed on one of the ectomorphicons. And it, it's kind of like the, the climactic battle here. And I guess the Megazord can fly. Oh, wait, sorry. It can't fly until Tommy, who has to save a monorail. He's a Falcon this time around. First, he has to save a monorail that was injured when one of the ectomorphicons went through it. And the kids who are going to save the parents, I think, are on the monorail, whatever. But then he comes and the, the Megazord is kind of suffering against the other ectomorphicon. And it's just more kind of raising Tommy to too high of a status. Because when his falcon joins, all of a sudden they are able to keep up with the, the Ivan Ooze ectomorphicon. And they blast into outer space. So they, they go... I guess now they can fly because they have the Falcon and Ivan Ooze joins them. Ivan Ooze is ultimately destroyed by Ryan's comet. It's like kind of a Chekhov's comet from the opening scene. The, the way that he's actually destroyed is they get him in the path of a comet. They're like tough tussling in zero gravity space. And I think the line is, what are you doing? And she says, taking care of business. And the Yellow Ranger breaks some glass and hits this red emergency only button. And apparently what the emergency only button does is a crotch blow to Ivan Ooze with the knee that knocks him backwards directly into the comet's path. The comet hits him and he blows up. But I don't know if it ever occurred to me as a kid that it was completely ridiculous that the emergency button was just a, raising the knee up to hit a groin. Yeah, kicking the balls button that you have to break a glass panel to use. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as Ivan Ooze is destroyed... Parents are broken from their leap to our doom mind control spell, and they reunite with all their kids. The Power Rangers go to the command center. They're first kind of told that Zordon is dead. He's already gone, but they, like, believe in the great power, and it manages to 
bring Zordon back to life. He was, must have just been on the cusp, apparently. I don't know. And they just kind of encant this great power, and the command center is restored almost immediately to its shiny original glory. Yeah, it's not really clear how they know to do this, how they're doing what they're doing. They just kind of all clasp hands and radiate this energy that resurrects Zordon and restores everything. Yeah, I agree. Like the whole great power concept, not very well thought out in in general. It's like represented as a coin on this little stone statue. And you never really get a sense of what it is, but it's enough to give them their Zords and their power and resuscitate the command center. So now we've reached the denouement. The climax is complete. We cut to this big celebration. And I, w- I gotta say, I was really vibing with this this celebration. It's like they're eating outdoors. It's some sort of festival, maybe for the comet. And there's this great moment where Bulk and Skull are telling their version of the story. The one where they're the heroes to this group of admiring listeners and they get a funny bit where uh, there's this banner that lights up apparently they had enough time to do like custom lighting work like neon signs that say thank you power rangers like this big display yeah it almost looks like the hollywood (laughs) sign yeah and upon seeing that one of bulker skull looks at it and says power rangers balkan skull i just love the elegance of that line Bulk and Skull really are the heroes, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Certainly the actors have a presence, <laughs> which not all the Power Rangers necessarily have. I'm not sure the Red Ranger, Rocky, has more than like two lines throughout the whole movie. It took me a long time to learn Adam's name, the uh, the new Black Ranger. Mm, yeah, I, I couldn't have recalled that off the top of my head right now. But the Power Rangers are kind of all eating dinner together in their color-coded outfits. And Fred, the backwards hat kid, the the poochie, comes up and Tommy kind of condescendingly is like, oh, I heard you were a big hero out there today, buddy. And he's like, oh, you did a little bit, but it was really the Power Rangers. And one of them is, maybe it was Tommy, I don't know, says, well, I hear you could be in line to be a Power Ranger yourself someday. And then he's like, maybe I'll be the Silver Ranger. And Billy said, it's got a ring to it. The Gold Ranger! And they all start high-fiving and stuff. So, fun fact about Gold Ranger. The Rangers, Power Rangers did eventually introduce a Gold Ranger. And you know who the Gold Ranger was? Who was it? Was it Tommy? It was freaking Tommy, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. God damn it, Tommy. No, it it is interesting to hear about who stuck around. Because I'm going to chime in here for a second. That uh, uh, one of the things I read about... I, I mentioned that they wrote out some of the characters who started pushing for more money. Clearly, producers didn't want these characters, these actors, to unionize. No no Power Rangers union here. Always gotta <laughs> swap people out, make sure they know they're interchangeable. But Billy actually stuck around for a while, until he left, as you said, uh, due to a homophobic atmosphere. But he persisted into, like, the Zeo days, I think. And then Tommy, I think, has been, like, brought back in multiple incarnations. I think Jason, the original Red Ranger, not in the movie, has at least one season where he returns. And I think they did one episode. It was, like, a big-budget, all-out episode where they brought back a whole bunch of different casts 
for just a couple of scenes, it was like you flashed and here were all of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and here were the Zero characters and here were them. And they actually brought back many of the original actors. Unfortunately, the actress who played Trini, the original Yellow Ranger, died in a car accident only a few years after she was written out of the show. So she is not able to appear, appear at these reunion things. But I think the others have appeared in some context. I'm not sure if Billy ever mended with them or not. But the, the film kind of wraps as fireworks start going off. And oh, and there's a Van Halen power ballad in the background. Again, higher and higher. For me, it was a jam when I was a kid. They're kind of cheering along the fireworks. It's a it's a uh, and it's a stirring ending. It makes you excited for the adventure that you just watched. And lastly, we get a little mid credit scene where Goldar and Mordant think that they're the new evil lords, but apparently Rita Repulsa and Lord Zed made it out of the snow globe when Ivanus died. So they return and take their throne again, so they can be the villains for season three. So. That wraps Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. I don't think we need necessarily need to go in good things and not so good things in kind of a formal way because I hit most of my upsides and downsides and most of my anecdotes. That's right. Like the Power Rangers, our format is shifting just a little bit. Uh, we haven't quite gotten to the point where we're having cast changes. <laughs> that could be down the line. Not yet, though. I actually hit most of my assorted thoughts already. One thing I wanted to mention, they did a new version of the Go-Go Power Rangers song. And the group credited with recording the 1995 movie soundtrack version of Go-Go Power Rangers is a band called the Power Rangers Orchestra, which was a heavy metal rock supergroup. They actually brought in musicians from different fairly prominent rock bands to record a version of this song and named the band the Power Rangers Orchestra, which I thought was pretty awesome. It's For me, that is like the, the best version of, of this song. What about you, Brian? Any other assorted thoughts that we have not successfully hit yet? I was glad I finally got to see this one all the way through. I think I'd seen the opening skydiving sequence before, but it was an experience. I'm sure... There's a little bit lost in translation as it is no longer 1995 and I'm no longer five. I, I feel like I've completed a chapter. It probably would have been one of your favorite movies because it didn't even have the putties to scare you, although it did have plenty of other ookie minions. That's right. One thing that colored my perception of this film negatively is that I feel like it mostly gets worse as it goes. I really dug the opening with the skydiving and I like spending time with the teenage characters when they're just kind of goofing around Angel Grove. And I do like Ivan Ooze, particularly when he's hamming it up. I feel like the movie loses a little bit of steam once the Rangers go to the planet, whatever the planet's called, where they meet Dulcia. And I like it when movies get better and end on a high note and rather than movies that get worse as they go. So it overall kind of... Uh, bothered me that and then of course it it reaches its nadir when we have a 15 minute ps2 graphics level cgi battle as the the climax of the film uh, i don't know about you but personally i like it when movies are good <laughs> maybe that's just me 
Well, no, I guess I feel like I've gotten better about it, but I used to like a movie had to have a good ending or I wouldn't think it was good because it was the last thing that I had seen, you know? It's like Up, I always felt like Up was a little bit overrated because the most memorable scene is the first 10 minutes of the film. I actually agree on Up. A lot of weird stuff happens as it goes along that I think they were just kind of throwing a lot of things at the wall. And I think the end is still satisfying, but we might have to watch Up at some point. That would be a fun one. I still think it's a great movie, but I feel like whenever you ask someone about Up, they're like, oh my gosh, I love that movie those first 10 minutes made me cry so much. And that's like, that's basically all they'll have to say about it. I, I think you're right. Yeah, it's like it could have been a short, a Pixar short. I have one other thought. Uh, this could easily go after our ratings, but uh, it's something I wanted to talk about just to follow up on Dan's theory of coolness earlier, that the 90s were just a point at which things were as cool as they had ever been and they would only get cooler. It, it makes me think a little bit about Discovery Zone. And now if you've listened to any of our episodes before, you may have heard me talk about Chuck E. Cheese. When I was a child in the 90s, there were a few different companies trying to copy the success of Chuck E. Cheese and create a kind of similar venue where it focused perhaps not as much on the animatronics, but on creating these like indoor playgrounds, you know, ball pits slides, crawl through tubes, that kind of environment with arcade games. A big one of these was Discovery Zone. And I feel like of all of them, Discovery Zone most clearly represents the 90s aesthetic, just these bold colors and these kind of like solid color shapes. There's a name for this art style, but I, I think you can understand what I'm talking about. It's like uh, I have a Nickelodeon telephone that like burps when the phone rings and it's it's purple and green and orange and it's all these blocky shapes. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I do, yeah. And you have like the primary obnoxious colors and stuff. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. Right. And so Discovery Zone was like that, every inch of it. I think there must have been an ad that had Alpha 5 in it promoting discovery zone because for some reason like alpha 5's command center where the floating head of zordon is is very clearly linked in my mind with discovery zone and discovery zone existed from like 1991 to 1999 it was a flash in the pan and people online say only 90s kids remember about a lot of things but if there's one thing that just existed in the 90s and left a distinct memory, I would pin it on Discovery Zone. That's a good one. Yeah, I went to Discovery Zone once or twice when I was a kid. For some reason, I remembered it being a store. I think probably what I'm getting it mixed up with in my head that has a very similar aesthetic of the bright colors. Is it Zany Brainy? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the other one. And that one, I just looked it up as we were talking, and that one was founded in 1991 and closed in 2000. So it's the same exact thing. Okay, well, exact <laughs> same thing. Very good catch. The reason it's not totally insane to throw this here at the end of this episode, right before we rank our scores, is that I looked in the Wikipedia article, and there was a Discovery Zone promotion. In fact, all that's under marketing for... Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie, is <laughs> it was promoted at Discovery Zone. There you go. Sharp memory there. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's all kind of the same, the same vibe. 
it's funny the movie released around the same time and was competing with Batman Forever, which is another movie that I associate with the obnoxious bright colors because you had was it Jim Carrey who played the Riddler in that, and then right. the obnoxious Tommy Lee Jones Two Face had a similar kind of purpley face for his evil side. That's right, and the crazy suit. Yeah, all extreme colors. All right, let's write in our envelopes, our secret envelopes, are is a good rating. And Brian, I will now ask you, is Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie from 1995, good? Well, I'm interested to hear what you say after this, but I am going to give it a four, good-ish. And basically where this falls for me is it's much better than something like The Last Day of Summer, which I, I think I gave a three. I, I was having fun watching this movie for the most part, and I'm not sure how much of that is nostalgia. This really is like a cultural artifact, just so clearly captures a moment in time and a distinct aesthetic. But I think, like you said, it does kind of decline in quality as it goes. And I don't think you could objectively point to much in this movie and call it a masterpiece. But it does have things going for it. I love the costume design. The opening with the parachutes is really strong. I just wish it had kept that level of quality. I think that's well said, and I agree with much of your sentiments. But what is your rating, Dan? So as the movie was going on early, I was like, man, this is way more entertaining than I remembered. You got Ivan News quipping, you got extreme rollerblading and skydiving and cool soundtrack. And then it really loses steam and it ends with the CGI climax, which just made me so annoyed that this was deemed good enough to be viewed by general audiences in 1995. That when I the movie wrapped, I was like, ugh. I left a really bad taste in my mouth. That movie is a two, a, a not good. But then as I was thinking a little more about it, if you really balance the whole thing out, there's a lot that is just drags and doesn't add much. But there are moments where you're right. There's there's people who kind of knew what they were doing and were taking their time to make something that was fun to look at and, and be around and had a good sense of energy and can't be fun and would appeal to the inner seven-year-old and anyone. I'm going to bump it up to the, the weakest of threes. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is not not good in, in my mind. That, that's where I landed on it. So the rose-colored glasses are off a little bit from when you were a seven-year-old. Definitely. I don't think I would watch this again on my own. I might spin the soundtrack. I might watch a couple of clips, but it's definitely not rewatch territory for me unless... I'm feeling really nostalgic and want to share something with my kids or something. I think I'll watch a few more of the episodes on Netflix. Uh, maybe get a couple Beetleborgs in there. That's my plan. That's a good pull right there. The Big Bad Beetleborgs. It was similar genre. TV show, I'm sure, was not long-lived. They had an annoyingly catchy earworm theme song, which is the main thing I remember about it. Big Bad Beetleborgs. Big bad Beetleborgs. And this is one of those songs that like, as soon as you think of it, it's stuck in your head for the next two days. I feel like there was another one like VR Troopers. They tried to kick off a whole 
line of these types of shows. Yeah, I remember that one being on. I never watched it. So I can't, I couldn't tell you anything about VR Troopers. Just that it existed. That one also had a theme song that got stuck in my head. VR Troopers. And that one was stuck in my head a lot too. None of them could touch Power Rangers in my mind. By the time they were rolling out the imitators, I had more or less moved on to Pokemon or whatever the case may have been. The next cool thing. That wraps up our discussion of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Any parting thoughts, Brian? This was fun. As we head into deeper into spring and, and summer's on its way, I look forward to some some light and airy viewings. Gotcha. And my, my parting thought is um, I just wanted to share with listeners, I, I feel like I pitch every single week, come follow me on Letterboxd. I, I keep up with what I'm watching on Letterboxd. And I kind of have, in addition to keeping up with the goods, I have two simultaneous viewing projects for other movies I watch throughout the week. One is revisiting a top 100 movies list I made in 2009. So more than 12 years ago, probably about 12 years ago. Um, It's kind of fascinating to look back at what I was when I was 20 and what my top 100 looked like. Um, And a lot of those movies, I have absolutely no idea why I would have ranked them in my top 100. A lot of them are ranked way lower than I would have expected, like that have really lingered in my memory. So it's been fun rewatching those. And and the other thing I've been doing, and I've mentioned this before, is I'm watching in chronological order the top, sorry, the 1001 movies to see before you die list. So I'm up into the early 20s now. Some of the, the classic silent films. I've almost escaped D.W. Griffith and his five epics that are on the the list and those ones I actually write out reviews for on Letterboxd. So I encourage you to come come follow me on Letterboxd and watch along with me. As always, you can find us on thegoodsfilmpodcast.com or send us an email at thegoodsfilmpodcast.gmail.com. So Brian, you mentioned you have something maybe a little bit lighter, maybe something else that won't make us too angry. Unless maybe Tommy's in that one too. I don't know. but I don't think so. I haven't looked at the cast list, but we'll have to keep our eyes peeled. The film that I have queued up next is kind of in the spirit of Caden Leopold, which we covered back in December, in that it's a movie that I remember seeing the trailer when it came out and thinking, oh, I definitely have to go see that. Something about that is intriguing. And I just never went to see it. And then I heard people say it was bad. So I have never seen it since. Uh, But I've always been curious. This is the film Now You See Me from 2013. And the hook is it's about like David Blaine style trendy hip magicians robbing a bank using magic tricks. This also has been on my to watch list since it came out. So I'm glad that you picked it. And if I recall, it was at least successful enough to have a sequel, too. That's right. So we may or may not check out that one, depending on how we're feeling. Maybe if, like most of the original cast returns, I'll check that one out. I, I really will want to see how I feel after the first one, but I've, I've always been curious. It says it's written by Ed Solomon, who's the guy who wrote the Bill and Ted movies, so I have some hopes. Okay, yeah. It's funny that you remember it being called bad, because... I did not have that impression. I, it was more mixed is what I heard and kind of divisive, I guess. So we'll, we'll see where we fall on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to giving this one a try. 
What do they say on Titanic? It's been a privilege playing with you this evening. <laughs> but in this case, watching Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Thanks for joining me, Brian. And thanks again, listeners. We will see you next week with Now You See Me. Have a good week. Thank you.